Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Thrive Infertility Podcast. This is your host, Kathy Quillett, and I am the owner of Tennessee Reproductive Therapy and my little corner of the world. I just love to welcome you and say this is a space for you. Y'all, I have just met our guest today, and I'm so excited already for you to just be a participant, even though passively in this conversation. I hope you walk away from it feeling really validated and empowered and encouraged because I think I'm going to be also just again in these few minutes with my guest. I, um, I think you're going to love it. I want you to help me welcome Lisa Williams. Lisa, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really looking forward to yeah. talking today. Yes, me too. So if you are meeting Lisa like I am for the first time, let me tell you about her just super impressive bio here. She is a co-founder of the grief community. So as you're listening to this, go ahead and just Google or Instagram, what's your grief. So she's the co-founder of that community. What's your grief. She received her master's degree in social work from the university of Maryland and has a master's in philosophy from the university of Warwick in the UK. She's been working in the field of grief and loss support for 12 years Uh, Before founding What's Your Grief, she um, supported parents and families in the hospital at end of life circumstances of unexpected and traumatic death and provided ongoing grief and bereavement support in the years following losses. She's just our girl in talking about this. Feeling frustrated with the online and print materials that were available for grievers, she co-founded What's Your Grief as a resource offering concrete, practical, creative, down-to-earth, and relatable grief support. What's Your Grief has grown to be one of the largest online grief support communities with over 5 million annual visitors and offering hundreds of free articles on all topics around grief and loss. They have a weekly podcast and online courses. And listen, she has come on to the Thrive Infertility podcast, but she has also been a grief expert for NPR, the Washington Post, US News, the New York Times, Huffington Post, and the BBC. Lisa, thank you for coming into our sacred little space here. Of course. I am, like I said, very, very, very happy to be here. Grief is something that luckily is getting a little bit more discussed in the cultural conversation, but for so long hasn't been. So we are always happy to be anywhere we can talking about this. So that's who you are professionally. Tell us a few little things about who's Lisa, the woman. Sure, sure. So uh, I, my background, as you shared, is in clinical social work. I'm based in Baltimore, which is mm. where I am from. I absolutely um, love Baltimore, and it is a city that is full of, um, sadly, a lot of loss, but also mm. a lot of resilience and creativity and just community and culture around how we support each other in times that are incredibly tough. So Mm -hmm. where I live is sort of a big part of me, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, I have traveled uh, and lived other places, but have always just felt like this is the place that made the most sense for me to live and to work with people who are experiencing losses. Um, I am divorced myself. So I have kind of in recent years gone through a lot of transition around that in addition Mm. to really what called me to doing this work 
in the beginning, which is um, death-related loss, which was a lot of what I grew up with. I lost my dad when I was a teenager. And so that was really kind of a significant part of my life early on. And I saw the impact that that had. Um, As you read in my bio, Mm -hmm. I have, before I found this world of, of social work and mental health and therapy. Uh, My background in undergraduate and my graduate school initially was in philosophy and religious studies. And a lot of that was because I was spending a lot of time at that age trying to figure out, you know, what are we we doing here? You know, what makes things meaningful when we go through and realize that Mm -hmm. life isn't always what we expect it to be. It really kind of throws you in a lot of different Mm. directions. So I I spent a little time um, working on on those things and then found my way to social work and mental health. I, I guess, you know, other, other things about me, I really, really love being outdoors. So I spend mm. a lot of my time um, trying to, though I live right in the middle of downtown and a lot of concrete, I try to spend a lot of time um, hiking and walking and camping and, you know, kind of doing those things to, to soak up the outdoors that I think are, are so good for our mental well-being. So. Yes. I yes. mean, the takeaway from that, friends, is, right? A, she's totally qualified for this conversation, but B, get outside for your mental health. Yes, it is frigid outside, but go for your soul, for your spirit, for your mental health. Go find a snippet of outside. Exactly. Soak up, even if it's not sunny, just soak up the sky. (laughs) That's how I always feel. It's just trying to get that makes a big difference. Okay. Let's go all the way outside of grief and let's just narrow this conversation. Okay. Sure. How do you, how do we, how can people define like what's grief? We get it. <laughs> yes. That's so silly, but culture gets it so wrong. You have to have, according to culture, I, I think, uh, a defined grief, a, a, a marker in the, in the soil where somebody, but there's so many things, especially in our world of infertility that we grieve. We grieve our own biological connection. We grieve, uh, intimacy. We grieve financial security, right? So what's grief? Absolutely. I think that in the most basic form, it's, like so complex and so simple, but the definition that we almost always tell people is the most helpful is grief is our normal and natural human response to loss. Mm. And that means all sorts of loss. And Ken Doka, who's a really well-known grief researcher, talks about this idea that change equals loss equals grief. And that means Mm. good changes in life can bring their own losses and grief difficult changes can bring their own losses and grief. And so I think one of the things that we, when we kind of start with that foundation of a definition of our natural, normal and natural response to loss, one of the things that's also really important is that it's not necessarily just our emotional response. It's our 
cognitive response, the way we mm. think about it, it's our existential response. I mean, for me, certainly, as I shared, it was that, you know, asking these big questions about mm. why, why we're here. What does this mean? Why me? Why am I going through, you know, mm. those sorts of things. It's our behavioral response. It's, you know, it's all these different things. It's physical grief can manifest in all of these different physical right. ways. Um, and so I think we try to make sure that when we're thinking about what grief is, that we're identifying all the losses that we may mm. go through and all the ways that grief may come up in these different domains and dimensions of our, of our being, you know, not just the emotional stuff, not just the feeling stuff, but all of these other ways that we exist in the world. When I hear that definition, I think it's personal. Your definition of grief and what you're grieving is personal. I think there's this grief Olympics that people are in, like, this isn't as hard for me because you've lost more. You are worse off. I can't sit. I don't have a permission slip to sit in my own grief because you've lost more in invalidating, minimize, scrutinizing our own personal experience. Yeah. I think that that is something that is so, so common. And it's so, it comes from this place, I think of both wanting to acknowledge what others have been through and also of kind of wanting to sometimes even try to make ourselves feel better. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also so misplaced because the reality is that those two things can be entirely true at the same time, which is that I am grieving and that someone else in the world has always been through something quote unquote worse than I have. And, you know, there's this, uh, there's this uh, grief kind of, I guess he was a clinician, he was a counselor, he was also a rabbi who wrote for many years about grief named Earl Grohman. And he used to say, people ask me all the time, what is the worst loss? What's the worst type of grief to go through? And he would say, the worst loss is whatever you're going through right now. That's Uh. your worst loss. And that's all that matters. Like we don't need to be comparing our losses to other people. We just need to be honoring what we're feeling right now and creating Mm -hmm. the space that we need for that. Um, And knowing we can all, we can all share this grief space Mm -hmm. together. It's not it's not that Olympics. It's not that competition. No, John Kabat-Zinn is the modern father of modern mindfulness. And he says, and I relate this to uh, sitting with your emotions. And he said, mindfulness means paying attention in the present moment on purpose and doing so non-judgmentally. And I really take that into grief, sitting with your emotions means paying attention in the present moment on purpose and doing so non-judgmentally and non-judgmentally to that, like you're saying is my experience is my experience. What I'm perceiving as grief, what I'm perceiving as a loss, whether it's, you know, money that you're putting towards fertility treatments, whether it's like a sexual relationship with your partner that you once thought was really hot and now it's clinical. Whether it's friends that are lapping you with infertility and you feel like you don't have your people anymore because they're all moving on without you. Those are losses. It doesn't mean that you've survived like 9-11 and you were there or whatever. Right. Absolutely. Your own perception and your own perception of what you're experiencing as loss and grief is so important and valid and necessary for them to work through. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that is, is so important too, is to name for yourself and, and recognize that often there's that primary loss that people have identified for themselves or that others around you may may see. But within that, as you just described, are these other secondary losses. There's often things that are sort of stacked together where it's not just that it's it's easy to kind of toss around, well, I'm I'm grieving, you know, mm-hmm. because I've had a divorce or infertility or because I have, you know, had a loved one die. But usually what that grief is comprised of is so many little secondary losses that all kind of come together to cluster and create that that big world of loss that we're navigating. And so one of the things we do often working with people is is really to think about that, have people sit down and kind of inventory their secondary Mm -hmm. losses and say, take a little time to think about what are the relational losses? What are the physical, like you said, like the really tangible, the financial security stuff, the things that have, you know, Mm -hmm. there that may have happened. What are some of the spiritual losses that Mm -hmm. are happening? You know, but really take the time to give yourself a a map of what this grief looks like for you so that you can start to honor all the different losses that may be part of your grief. Right. And I think whatever it is that we're personally grieving, I tell my clients this all the time, but as the culture of humanity, we are all dealing with loss and grief right now, right? COVID pandemic, this new world, this division over vaccine, not vaccine, right? We're dealing with all of these cultural losses that are saying, stay home, isolate. You can't do the things that you love. We're not hopeful anymore. And so you're dealing with a two year. Remember when we said we're going to flatten the curve in 15 months and now we're (laughs) two years in and we're having these conversations about all we're losing. And that's yeah. already been the people who have lost from COVID, right? Absolutely. And then we throw our own individualized grief on top of it. Yeah. So I, we are walking around as heavy human beings right now. Absolutely. I think every person, and I think that that's helpful in some ways to remember. It's heavy to remember, but it's helpful mm. to remember that when we're encountering people in the world right now, I think everyone is carrying more than they were equipped to carry, than they were ready to carry, than they knew they would be carrying. Mm. And it means that people don't often have as much bandwidth and space to give one another their ability to to care for each other is often a little diminished because of the care we all need to give to ourselves right now. And so it is, I think, a helpful thing for us to remember when we interact in the world these days. Yeah. So answer this, if you can, what are, I mean, the question is, okay, so we've done grief. We've defined it. How do we grieve? Like, what are some, if we're sitting in a group that you run or uh, you're in session with somebody grieving, what are healthy versus non-healthy ways to cope with grief? That's a, that's a great question. So I think one of the things I'll, I'll pull back a little bit before that and kind of go back to how we as a society think that grief is supposed to look. I think we've internalized a lot of ideas. um, And though Elizabeth Kubler-Ross did many, many wonderful things in her career, one of the things that I think is um, 
not the legacy she wanted to live was sort of distilling down this idea that grief happens in these neat, tidy stages and that people are going to go through and they're going to come to a place of acceptance and, and move forward. Kubler-Ross wasn't even working with people grieving. She was working with people who were dying and, you know, right. her, a lot of the, the things that she saw were in, in that place. Um, but oftentimes people, what they anticipate is that it's going to look like that. It's going to look like these neat little tidy stages. I'm going to go through denial, anger, bargaining, you know, depression, uh -huh. acceptance. And that's what my grief is going to look like. Oh, the research lets us know that is very much not what grief is going to look like. And the thing that's really difficult is that um, adaptive grief can look really, really different for different people. It manifests in so many different ways. Coping can look so different from one person to the other. So there's not an easy checklist to be able to say, okay, this is what we do when we're grieving. This is how we know it's healthy. This is how we know it's a problem. Um, it's a really frustrating answer for people because a, a lot of it is saying, and anything kind of goes and also, we need to ask ourselves the question, how is that working for you? Is this something that's serving me or not serving me? Um, and those are really kind of the places that, that we need to pull to. So with that context given, I think that when we look at how people are, are grieving, what? Identity is often something that is a huge part of how we grieve and what we're grappling with. So early on in grief, one of the things we see a lot of people trying to figure out is who am I in the world if I'm not the person I imagined that I was going mm. to be, if I'm not doing the things I thought I would be doing right now, if I'm not with the people, if I don't, and again, it comes out. If so I'm not a mom ways. yet. If I'm not a mom yet, what does that mean? Right. Who am I if I always imagined that that's who I was going to be? Right. And we see that coming out, you know, in so many ways. And even if it's not wholly identified first and foremost as identity, it's just that idea of sometimes grieving the life that I was living or the life that I always imagined, you know, and that feeling. And we describe when we look in the grief research, people always imagine, okay, the, the common feelings, the most common must be sadness and then anger or something. Really the most common emotion that people identify in grief is actually yearning. Um, and it's wow. that feeling of just wanting something that, that is not there. It's wanting either that life we used to have or that a life that we imagined, people will spend a lot of time going back to those past memories and just thinking, God, why can't the world be like it used to be? Or why, um, what would it be like if everything had been different? And now I'm yearning for these things that I imagined and that I kind of wanted yeah. to have. And so that that's also, I think, in terms of the things people don't necessarily expect mm -hmm. um, that come out really early is to say, yes, of course I'm sad, but really it's this feeling, this kind of pull towards wanting to be in a different place than I am that can feel really overwhelming to yeah. people early on in their loss. Yeah. So good. I just think that word yearning yeah. I mean, my, like your, you lost your dad. I lost my mom five years ago and there's this like yearning. You're right. Like I, 
I sometimes it still like takes my breath away to realize we don't have any new pictures after August of 2016. Yeah. I yearn for more. I long for more. Absolutely. Mm. That I think that idea of just, you know, and oftentimes the things that will comfort people are going back to these times and thinking of, God, I just remember what it was like to go into mom's kitchen while she was cooking or these, you know, places mm, that we kind totally. of have that comfort. And we just feel like that place, it's about her, it's about what's gone, but it's also just about this feeling that we want to recreate that we often can't, that can right. just feel so, so hard and so painful. Mm. And it's also tied sometimes to the future's that we feel like we're losing too of, you know, we imagined we would be creating a certain type of family or we would be doing something in a certain way and trying to create things associated with our past. Mm -hmm. And when that doesn't happen, there's that huge weight of that loss as well. Right. You're right. I I really want to hit on the negative ways to cope. I mean, we dispelled this whole Kubler-Ross stuff. I mean, I have clients that are like, I'm in bargaining. I'm almost (laughs) done. And I'm like, Oh, girlfriend, Uh, this is not, if you want to subscribe to this, it's not linear. Nope. And you, uh, might not be done with it. Right. Cause acceptance can also give way to depression or acceptance can be a place you sit in for like an hour. Absolutely. I think that that and Kugler-Ross never intended them to be adopted as linear or as thing, you know, they said we could, we could bounce between them in the course of a day. Um, right. so I think it's really important to remember that negative coping. I think the biggest thing that I think can help us to think about what is, what is positive quote unquote versus negative, um, isn't just to say, okay, this list of things is negative and and this list of things is positive. It's to remember that in grief, what we know is that the way we cope in the beginning can sometimes be really, really healthy. And then it can become really, really unhealthy. So I give that as a little disclaimer. Um, We know that coping in general, if we think about what coping is and define coping as just anything we do to alleviate a difficult or distressing feeling that we're having. Mm. So, you know, that in in its baseline is how we conceptualize what it means to cope with something. Um, And sometimes when we find things that really help us to do that early on, Um, they don't end up being the things that are helpful in the long term and vice versa. So what I I guess what I mean by that is probably the biggest thing we would put in the category of negative coping is avoidance, anything that boils down to avoidance. And so when we are avoiding difficult emotions, that plays out in all sorts of ways. We might avoid reminders. We might avoid going to a place where we know it will um, overwhelm us with Mm. difficult emotions. We might say, I, you know, avoid going to a certain place where I used to go with my mom because I get so overwhelmed by those emotions when I'm there. I feel like I can't hold myself together. Right. And early on, um, that can feel, 
helpful. It can feel like I need to do that to survive. I don't want to have a meltdown in public. I don't want to, you know, walk by a park where I see parents and kids playing because I know that might make me overwhelmed and tearful and that's too much for me. But in the long term, right, that is something that we can't keep avoiding places forever right. because they bring up difficult feelings for us. And in certain instances, the places that hold the most pain are also the places that can start to hold comfort for us. Right. And they can start to be places where we can find some healing and some connection and, and ways to integrate our loss. So when we look at this this kind of tricky word of avoidance, I think part of it is saying it doesn't mean that we never avoid things. Healthy avoidance in spurts, mm -hmm. in certain moments, is the only way we survive grief sometimes. It's like, a boundary. We need a break. It's a boundary, absolutely. Mm -hmm. The problem is when that avoidance is constant, it's persistent. We're not finding ways mm -hmm. to kind of shift it over time. So the other things that can fit into this, of course, the probably the most obvious negative coping is certainly when we talk about substances like drinking, going, you know, any sort of drinking, smoking, any, any yes. substance we use. <laughs> is eating. Eating. Absolutely. Um, and then I, I think with these that, and where it can become tricky is that sometimes there are things that people are giving us really positive validation for. So sometimes it's just, we throw ourselves into work and we're right. like, I'm not going to, I'm just, I'm going to work all the time. I'm going to stay sure. really busy all the time so that I never have to sit with these difficult feelings. I don't have to think about this. And so all of a sudden we kind of throw ourselves into that work place and people are saying, oh my gosh, you're doing, you're going through so much and yet you're, you're doing so well, you're doing great at work. You're, you know, and we're getting positive reinforcement sometimes. Right for those things that ultimately we're actually doing to kind right. of avoid the difficult yeah. stuff that we're going through. Right. Um, so that's one that we all often tell people to look for is just if that's coming up. Another one that we tell people to look for is sometimes taking care of other people. That can mm -hmm. be its own form of avoidance. When we go right. through really difficult losses, Sometimes mm. other people in our lives are going through difficult losses too. As you described right now with, with the world that we are living in, yeah. the COVID world, like everyone's going through something. Right. And so for some of us, especially people who are helpers, our safe, comfortable place is to say, all right, I'm going to pull myself together. I'm all right. And I'm going to throw myself into taking care of the people who are around me. Um, and again, is I am certainly not saying taking care of people is bad, right? That's a, no, it's a good thing. No. But we always have to have this spectrum. And for so much of the way that we see people coping with grief, it's about saying, how, am I, how do I make sure I stay in this balanced place in the middle where it isn't avoidance all the time? Um, but taking care of other people might give me a nice break sometimes. It might make me feel good. It might make me feel like I can use some of um, what I'm going through to serve and support someone else. So it's all about that balance and where it fits yeah. over time. I worked with a kid once who uh, lost their sibling in an accident and they were the, the baby of the family and became so immersed in taking care of 
being a non-issue for the parents, for the surviving siblings. And I got them as a client four years after this, uh, this wow. traumatic loss. And they had occupied this, uh, this role of caretaker. I'm fine. Yes. I'm fine. And hearing this person talk about the accident, it was like the day of, they were still watching this movie. They were in it. They were immersed in it. Their brain had moved a day out of it yes. because they avoided and didn't get to a place where it was like, okay, I avoided for a minute. I, I was a caretaker for a minute, but now it's okay to focus on me. And by yes. the time I got a hold of this person, it was like, everybody was not not moving on, like I'm over it, but like moving forward in life, sure. celebrating new things. And this, yes. my client was like, it's four years ago for me. I can't do this. Yes. And, and it can come to be defining right now. When we talk about identity shift in that role, mm. if I lean so much into that caretaker space as sort of my, my identity now, right. Then all of a sudden, when other people start to be doing okay again, and they don't need me and everybody's in it, then suddenly it's like, well, wait, now my caretaker identity is It's another loss. It's another loss. And now I need to readjust again to try to figure out where I go from here. So there's so much that can mm. get wrapped up in that. And, and I think that that, you know, when we talk about negative coping, Part of it is just that place of being able to say anytime, even if it's not taking care of others, but anytime that we're just not able to admit that this is hard, that this is grief, that I need support, that I need, you know, that idea of I have to deal with this on my own. No one else can understand me. Oh, mm -hmm. um, that's one that we know. And I think goes a little bit into the grief Olympics thing, right? Is that right. tendency to compare is we look around and we say, unless I can find someone who's gone through exactly what I've been through. No one can know who I'm going through, what I'm going through. So I shouldn't even bother trying to explain it or reaching out to somebody or seeking connection because I think that, that no one's going to get it. And, you know, we tell people all the time as hard or counterintuitive as, as it is, as a response to that is no one is ever going to know what you're going through. That is true. Right. We are all living wholly unique and individual human experiences. Yeah. And yet we are able to connect and share and support one another through those in different ways. And it's okay to say, yes, no one will ever know exactly how I feel or what I'm going through. And people can still understand pieces of it they can mm -hmm. still provide me support, even though they don't understand. I think a lot of times we assume that someone has to understand in order mm -hmm. to provide us support. And right. that's not necessarily true. So sometimes being open to that, sometimes the negative, um, you know, the negative thing we see is that I'm just gonna, the way I'm gonna cope is I just have to be there for me. I can't rely on anybody else. It's, you know, it's all about, me knowing how to support myself. And yes, it's important that we know how to support ourselves. And also that com commitment to kind of insulating yourself from support from others can be a way to, you know, isolate, to not set ourselves up to be disappointed, you know, all those yeah. other things that happen. 
Okay. So let's say somebody's listening to this and they know somebody who is grieving. What uh, advice, what mm-hmm. encouragement do we give to them? Um, I think so often people walk into a room of somebody grieving and it's like, I know what you're going through. Here's what we need to do, whatever, which I watched your face and she just cringed for all the people who thought maybe I was thinking that that was good advice or she would agree. <laughs> no, much the contrary. How, I mean, I read a book a couple of years ago that was called just show up about sure. walking through somebody through a terminal illness. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you encourage supporters of grief to support those who are grieving? Yeah, I think the first piece, the, the first most important thing is this mindset shift mm. of remembering that grief is a normal and natural human response and experience. Mm. It's not a problem to be solved. It's not something to be fixed. It's not a place where you're coming to say something that's going to save the day or cheer them up or do, you know, Mm -hmm. it's about being able to say my role is to support this person through whatever they're going through by just being able to be present with that pain and be present with those things. So we always say, don't think of yourself as being there to comfort somebody, because when we think we're there to comfort somebody, that's when we say things like, oh, well, at least you can adopt, or at least, you know, the things that come out and you go, oh God, take it back, take it back. At least, at least you're still young. You'll meet somebody else to to remarry, you know, the things that people say that come out all the time. And so I think what we want to do is say, no, we're not looking for a silver lining. We're not looking to find a rainbow in the storm. We're just trying to be able to say, I know that whatever you're going through is devastating and I'm here. Um, What I'm here means, I think it's really important to take ourselves outside of ourselves and remember what I might want and need if I were going through that or when I went through that is not necessarily what they might want or need going through this experience. So maybe when you went through something, you were thrilled that people showed up with casseroles and did meal trains and came by to hang out and and did all of those things. That is exactly what some people want, right? They Mm -hmm. want people to show up and be there. And other people are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, I don't want a meal train. I don't want your, you know, I don't, part of it is going, how do we get comfortable Mm. asking people what they need? And a lot of times people say, oh, the worst thing you can say is, you know, just let me know what you need. You know, you need to be specific. You need to tell them that you're going to the grocery store and you're getting their stuff. And yeah, some people that's, that's Mm -hmm. perfect. And some people that's really stifling. And they're like, I, I want to be able to tell you now, I feel like I have to say, no, I don't need that. Now I feel guilty that I turned you down on your offer. And now I don't want to have to say, could you do this instead? Um, So sometimes being able to come from that place of saying, I, I I can't imagine how hard this is and what you're going through. I'm not sure exactly what you need or how I can best show up for you. Here are some things I'm thinking might be helpful, but I know they might be all wrong. Like, tell me what, what you need and Mm. acknowledge that what they, you know, that like 
they might not know right at this moment, mm -hmm. what they need might change over time, but just to kind of create a really open space that genuinely lets people know that you want to be there for them and you also want to work together to figure out what that actually means. Yeah. And that just goes back to the definition of grief that we used at the beginning and that it's so individualized. Yes. Your grief isn't my grief. Your experience of grief isn't mine. Uh, about 20 years ago, my brother was in a motorcycle accident. We almost lost him. He is a paraplegic now, but my parents and my oldest brother and I were all at the hospital and I, my, my mom wanted I mean, we're all grieving the same situation. My mom wanted everybody there, all of her friends, mm -hmm. like let's have a party in the waiting room. My dad wanted them all to go home. My yep. brother was in the, in the room with my other brother and he was vigilant bedside and I hid in a stairwell. Like, mm -hmm. and here's the thing. We're all right. Yes. We were all doing exactly what was like humanly intuitive to each one of our own grief experiences. Exactly. And that is what's so hard sometimes for families is when you're looking around and you're going, oh my God, we're all going through the same thing. And yet we're all doing it so differently. What we need is so different, what we're feeling, but our, our losses is unique and our coping is unique, even when we're going through the same, same things mm -hmm. in the same moment. So being able to acknowledge that mm. is just huge. I think as right. a family and as individuals and as friends and as support people to right. just, you know, really, really be able to acknowledge that. And, and then over time to keep, to keep showing up. I mean, I think that's the other piece of advice that we tell people is that oftentimes early on, right? You get all this support from people. They know that you're going through something that you've gone through a miscarriage or that you know they know that you're going through maybe in the early days of struggling with um, infertility. And you have people where you feel like, okay, everybody's checking in, they're rallying mm. and you know, all that. And then time starts passing. And then all of a sudden you feel like, wow, everybody forgot that I'm going through this. You know, people think it's over. People must think that, no. because, you know, that I, because I'm out and about doing stuff or I'm smiling or whatever, that now they think that I must be fine. Uh, and so the other thing that we really say is just keep checking in, keep showing up, keep remembering that the holidays are going to be hard birthdays, you know, all those like potential dates that were going to be significant in some way, those are all going to be hard and check in, check in, check in. Yes. I just think due dates, lost due dates. dates. Yes. I mean, um, I, you know, when my mom passed away, a friend of mine lost her dad a couple mm. months before, and I have put her dad's death date in my phone. Oh, and gosh. So yeah every, but she also did the same thing with mine and we're five years in, and she's one of the only people that checks in. And I just think if people could like, I'm the only one, so you don't know my story, Lita, but I had recurrent miscarriage and I still remember my, 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 uh, the dates when I found out I was pregnant, I remember the dates of demise. I remember due dates and I'm yes. the only one, right? I yeah. mean, even sweet hubby doesn't, and that's okay, uh -huh. but those yep. are significant for me. They're, it's been I, a decade and they're significant for me. 
and and they'll always be significant. And I think that's the thing, giving ourselves permission to say permission. like, this is, this was a devastating thing that I went through that will always stay with yep. me in some way. And that I will always, you know, have certain times of year or certain specific dates or certain that are associated with that. And that that's okay. That's a part of how we grieve. We yep. don't put losses behind us. They become part of who we are and yes. become part of our life as we go forward. And I think part of it too, to, we talk so much about how can other people be good at supporting people who are grieving and a conversation we like to have a lot with our community too. And that I like to have with clients is how can we help people be better at supporting us? And one of the things I tell people often is tell people what your dates are. Tell people like, yes, it would be wonderful if everybody had put them on the calendar as a recurrence for the rest of time, but people probably didn't do that. And so I had recently, I use Marco Polo as a, a lot to keep in touch with friends. And I have friends who there's four of us on a Marco Polo group and one, um, one of us lost her brother a few months ago. Mm. And after that, we've, we've all had a number of losses and we were kind of talking about different things. And somebody on the group said, can I, can we just go over, can everybody share their dates? Like the ones that are hard, like your dates so, so we can all, and, and everybody's dates were like really different, right? Like I, you know, one person was kind of, and one person was like, you know, I don't even really think about my dad's death date, but what's actually really, really hard for me, you know, is something that's related to this time of year where we always used to take this trip together and blah, blah. That's when I start thinking about it. And it's like, I wouldn't even know that, right? Unless I asked, but I think normalizing that space of saying with the people who are the most important to us, Mm -hmm. helping them to know when we are going to need support. Um, if we know that there's certain anniversaries or days or, or markers Mm -hmm. that are always tough for us. So I think a part of that is just getting comfortable with it and feeling like, no, I'm Mm -hmm. allowed to claim that space of saying, this is when I need you. I'm allowed to advocate for myself. I'm allowed to say, I think in grievers, we feel that there's strength in saying, I'm okay. I'm okay. Absolutely. Yes. But I think also the strength comes in saying, I'm not okay. I'm not well. Mm-hmm. I'm just not okay. And yep. on this day, this is hard for me. I need your support. Yes, that's exactly, exactly it. And, and part of it is our, you know, I think we see the discomfort in other people's faces mm-hmm. when we are not okay. And we see them having that, oh gosh, I don't know how to, what to say right now, or I don't know what to do, or I want to fix this. And, and we sometimes have that feeling then of, oh no, I want to alleviate their discomfort mm-hmm. by saying, oh no, it's fine. I'm okay. Don't worry about it. Oh, you right. know, and, and I'm, I'm aware of it. I, I, I'm still guilty of it sometimes, no matter how often I talk with people about this. But I think sometimes just being able to say, I'm, I'm not, I'm not okay. It's okay that I'm not okay. And here's what, here's what I need right now. Here's what would really, you know, help me right now. I don't need you to, to fix it. I don't need you to do it. I just need you to to listen or to sit with me or to come out or drag me out of my house. I haven't left the house in four days, like whatever it is yeah. to just be able to say, the reason I'm sharing this with you is 
because this is what I need. And it might be just your presence. Um, But I think that alleviates, you know, for some people that that feeling of, oh no, now she wants me to say the thing that's going to fix it. And I don't have the thing that's going to fix it because there's nothing that's going to fix it. There's no verbal bandaid that you can put on it. None. (laughs) Exactly. I feel like we could have this conversation for forever. That being said, let's move towards landing this plane a little bit. Yes. What are like, if I'm in your office and we're grieving and whatever, like, what is one thing you want to encourage this community with? What is one thing that you say to somebody who's grieving that you can just leave us with? that feels just like a huge hug. (laughs) (laughs) Something that feels like a huge hug. Um, I, I don't, I, I, wow, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, I think because, you know, one of the reasons it's tough and maybe this is what, what I think of a, a huge hug. I don't know if it's always going to land like a huge hug to everyone else. Um, is that I think that the world of living after any sort of loss is always a little bit bittersweet. And mm. that what yes. that means is that even in our most joyful moments, even in our happiest moments, in fact, sometimes, especially in our happiest moments, Mm -hmm. that is when we also are most aware of the people who aren't there, the places that we thought we'd be that we are not the places, Mm -hmm. the person we thought we'd become that we haven't become that, you know, those moments are sometimes this kind of mix of, um, of incredible joy and pain that Mm -hmm. all get wrapped up together. And so I, I guess that one of the things that we say to people a lot that can be helpful to remember is that the life that you always imagined is not the only life worth living Mm. and that there are these amazing other lives that we, that we will live that are not the lives that we imagined that will be filled with joy. There will always be that pain that, you know, our mom's not there and it's not that life we imagined that she'd be there for, you know, the, whatever the event was that we always imagined we'd have kids and now we're at this place and we we don't and that, but there is still this incredible life that's there. And it always lives alongside of our recognition of the life that we always wanted. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. Thank you so much Lisa for coming on here and talking grief with us. Thank you so much for having me. It was really, really great to get to talk about this today. Yes. So if people want to find you, where are you? Social media, website. Absolutely. Our website's whatsyourgrief.com and our social media, we're at whatsyourgrief on all the regular places except Snapchat, but we're on all the other ones. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for being here. Guys, thank you for joining us for another episode of Thrive and Fertility. I hope that you have a great week. Come back and see us again next week. Hang out with us again. Go out and thrive. Bye, y'all.